What, so I'm, I'm going to start out with some review, and then we're going to get into some new stuff. Um, was, this is a question, you don't have to answer this, but this is kind of for my notes. Was the purpose of the incarnation, which is the word made flesh, dwelt among us, in us, was the purpose of the incarnation to ultimately change God or to change us? You can just think through this. Was the purpose of Jesus, incarnation, to ultimately change God, to change something about God, or to change something about us? This question is at the core of what Yahweh has been walking us through this summer. Was God, and I'm being really, I'm exaggerating when I say this stuff, but I'm just trying to cut to the point. Was God so mad at us because of our actions that he had to kill us to satisfy his anger toward our actions, but Jesus became human, the object of that anger because of our actions, so that he could be killed instead. Is that what the incarnation was? Or, or was God so filled with love toward us that he refused to let us live in our darkness and remain enemies in our minds, Colossians 1, therefore put the fullness of himself into the depths of our darkness to put it to death and get his kids back in the light. So was, was the purpose of Jesus to change something about God or was it to change something about us? We have often, 99% of the time, whether or not we know it, believed that the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation was to change God. Right? And there's one issue with that. All throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see multiple places where God says himself, I am the Lord and I do not change. Right? So, so, so this relationship, this relationship that we have with the Lord has, and I'm going to use this language throughout the day, has never been contractual. The relationship that we have with the Lord has never been contractual. That is, it has never been do this and get this, ever, okay? As I've taught before, that is what we call karma. You know what I mean? Like karma is going to come back to bite you. What we're saying is, if you do this, this is going to happen to you. It's called karma, okay? That, that's not what we have. We don't have a God full of karma. You know what I'm saying? So, so it's never been contractual. To think that way is actually, I mean, by definition, idolic because you're no longer worshiping God. Okay. Paul even says in Romans 7 that the purpose of the law was not to define our relationship, but to reveal the delusion and darkness hiding in our identity so that we would understand the aim of the Messiah ultimately. So apart from the law, our darkness was left in hiding or our sin our formlessness, it was left in hiding. But in the law, our sin, our formlessness, our darkness, our delusion, our distortion, all of that in the Greek, was brought to the light. And according to Ephesians 5, also Paul, every single thing that is brought to the light becomes truth. So the purpose of the law was to bring our delusion to the light so that when it comes into the light, Jesus could shine a light on it and turn it into truth. So it was never, the law was never, if you do this, you get this. If you do this, you'll stay in good graces. If you do this, you'll get this back. No, 
what the purpose of the law was, was to show us that we are going to try to get this on our own. And when we do, we're going to fail. And when we fail, we're going to realize we can't do this on our own. And when we realize we can't do this on our own, Jesus is going to become us so that he can do it on our behalf. That, that's the whole purpose of the law. So let me, let me say it like this. I said this Tuesday night because this has been blowing my mind. I didn't realize this until I thought about it this week. But you know the verse Jesus says, you've been taught, and it's in Leviticus, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know that verse in the Old Testament? If you don't, it's in the Old Testament. And what that was, it was a law saying, if somebody does something to you, you can do that same thing back to them. So we read that, and we say, oh, we'll see, God's justifying punishment for somebody doing something. Nope. Here's what God's doing. Here's what would have happened. If uh, Morgan came to me, or let's use Evan, because, you know, it would have been, um, that's a little more likely to happen, what I'm about to say. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I love you, Evan. So, but let's just say, Evan, I go to the back to get coffee, and Evan comes up and steals all my stuff, okay, and leaves. Um, and that has happened not by Evan, but by other people in this church, um, that not in this church, but that have broken into the church and done that. So, anyway, and this is what I wanted to do back, if I'm being completely honest. But here's what would have happened in that time. Evan comes, steals all my stuff, and Rachel says, hey, Josh, I saw Evan steal all your stuff. And so before the law, here's how I would have responded in this culture. I would have got all my boys, we would have gone to Evan's village, and not just killed Evan, we would have killed the entire village to get back at him. You know what I'm saying? So when Jesus, or when God, um, including Jesus, introduces the law, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's not saying you can go get them. He's actually restricting punishment, saying you can't go kill somebody's entire village if they murder your kid. You can go murder their kid. You know what I'm saying? Which you're like, well, how in the Lord? But if you think about it in this time, so God is restricting it all the way back, and he's leaving that door open, He's leaving the door open, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, for you to then look at somebody and hopefully say, I know we're commanded that I can get back at you what you've done to me, but I'm not going to. But he restricts it all the way down. Then Jesus comes onto the scene, the word made flesh, the word of God, Jesus, comes onto the scene, and he says, y'all have been heard, y'all have heard it taught that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I've come to give you something brand new. If somebody does something against you, you are to bless them. In other words, the word becomes flesh and then does what we weren't able to do. The the aim of the law was hopefully for us to say, you do something against me, I'm going to bless you back. We didn't do that, so the word became flesh and did it on our behalf. So you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now I'm telling you if somebody curses you or somebody does something against you that you are to bless them that you're to turn the other cheek and i'm gonna take a step further that you are to love your enemies <laughs> you know what i'm saying i mean you were t- he said you were taught that you could love those who love you here's what i'm teaching you you are to love those who love you and you're to love your enemies that hate you and i said this tuesday night and i'm not preaching on this right now but we need to be re- real careful real careful how we give ourselves a command and an ability to accomplish something that subconsciously we don't believe God does. It's easy for us to believe God loves those who love him. Do we believe God loves his enemies? 
because that's what he told us to do. Right? So, so, so here we are. E- either Jesus has given us a command to do something that God either A, doesn't do, or B, can't do, or we've seen him wrong. It's one of the two. You know, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So it's never been contractual. So many, sadly, have a contractual relationship with God. They see the cross as God saying, okay, I'm going to do this for you. Now you do this for me. That's what we see the cross as. God upheld his end of the deal in a contractual sense, if we think like this. God upheld his end of the deal by dying for us, and now we uphold our end of the deal by behaving really well. In a contractual relationship, once the contract is broken, the relationship is severed, and punishment by law is owed to the party that broke their end of the deal. That's how like contracts work, right? You enter in, you have all this business, you know, writing, everybody signs, and if you break your end, there's a document saying you broke your end of the contract, therefore you are punished. So let's say you owe money and you don't pay, like if I don't pay my mortgage, I signed a contract saying I'm going to pay my mortgage, right? So me and our bank have a great relationship while I'm paying that mortgage. If I stop paying my mortgage, we have a horrible relationship, and guess what happens? The police show up or whoever else shows up to take my house away. And they're not going to get me back in another contract. So that's how a contractual relationship works. Um, By the way, okay, by the way, we see ourselves, ourselves as entering into this type of deal, this contract, when we, just for example, repeat a prayer. So we repeat a prayer, repeat after me, you know, God, I'm so awful, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, I'll never sin again, forgive me, or whatever. And so we'll repeat that prayer, not that's a bad thing, as long as it leads to something that's right, but we'll pr- repeat it, and then we'll enter into a contract And then we'll spend the rest of our days trying to uphold our end of the contract, which we saw in the law is not possible. So when we fail, probably every day, at upholding our end of the contract, then we slide into hiding because we think we can hide the fact that we're not upholding our end of the contract to God. And if we can hide it good enough, maybe he won't do anything against us because we've broken our end of the contract. So we slide into hiding. And then after we slide into hiding, we'll start running from the people of God because the people of God find out they're going to tell God and then he's going to see I broke the contract. And then once we stop hiding from the people of God, we start saying things like, I can do church on my own. I, I, bro, I can do church wherever I am. No, you can't. Let me ask you this. If a, um, if, I don't know, who's our, Tim Scott, is he our senator? Maybe. Uh, don't have a clue. It, so Tim Scott at some point was a senator or a house representative person. And, uh, and uh, I mean, like, I'm, God bless him, but, I mean, Washington, D.C. is basically, you know, doing absolutely nothing at this point. But anyway, and so, so I don't really care who's there. But um, let's say Tim Scott, who's part of Congress. The only way you can pass a law in Congress is to be, A, at Congress, present, and for the entire Congress to pass something, right? So when Jesus tells Peter, you are Peter, rock, I will build my church on you. Church, ecclesia, is a legislative body. So you could replace church and put Congress, and it's, it's the accurate description of what the Greek word is saying, ecclesia, so legislative body. So if Tim Scott comes home to South Carolina, spends all of his days in South Carolina, and says, I can do Congress on my own, we would all, hey, never vote for him again, 
and B, he would probably be in jail. Right? Because you can't do Congress on your own. The purpose of the church is not for us to come together, sing kubaya, everybody go home feeling better about themselves. The purpose of the church is for the legislative body of believers to come together and decree things in the kingdom, a.k.a. in the earth, that is going to govern how the earth is going to respond. That's why we're here. So when we worship, we're not just doing our weekly chore. When we worship, we're declaring things that the earth has to respond to. We're making laws in the kingdom. That's why it's called a kingdom. Do you see what I'm saying? So for, like, well, I can do church on my own. You literally cannot. You can do devotion on your own. Absolutely. But you cannot do ecclesia on your own. And th- but this is what happened. Everybody's running from the church. A, because the church is not an ecclesia. The church is a social club. So sure, run from that because it's not doing anything. But people are running from the church, and they're running back to their homes, and they're thinking, I can affect the kingdom all by myself. And Jesus himself said, where two or more are gathered, I'm there. Huh, huh, right? You know what I'm saying? So, so this is just, and, and I know like, people are going to be so mad about this, and if you are, that's fine. That's fine. You're, it's heresy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is like baseline gospel. If we believe something other than this, dear God, help us. Like, you know, I'm just teaching, like, that's as easy as it gets. But we, we've, so, we've missed this, and it's because we see our relationship with God as a contract. And if it's a contract, we can break it often. When in Gen- Lord, I'm so far off my notes. When Genesis, this is what happens when I don't preach a week. When Genesis 15 happens, Abraham is about to enter this covenant. It's a blood path. I've taught this before. It's in my book if you want to buy it. But in Genesis 15, Abraham, the Lord comes to him, and he says, I want you to go get this and this and this. He gets all these animals. And then Abraham, Abraham at this point takes it upon himself to cut them in half and let the blood spill down this crack in the ground. Okay, So the blood spills down, and what Abraham realizes is the Lord is about to enter into a marriage covenant. It was called a blood path covenant. Okay, He enters into the blood path covenant. He stops, and he realizes there's not a chance that I can live in a covenant like this with God because there's no way I can uphold it. And so he falls asleep. He has this prophetic dream about the Israelites leaving Egypt. And when he wakes up, he sees two things. He sees a uh, smoke and fire pots. But he sees smoke and fire torch in a pot coming down this blood path. So two presences. And it's the Lord saying that I know you can't uphold your end of the deal so I'm going to enter into my side and your side on your behalf so that there's no possibility of you getting out of the deal. So when Jesus comes and dies on a cross and his blood is spilled, his blood is spilled because of the contract or the covenant, I should say, I'm getting my words mixed up, because of the covenant that he entered into with his own blood in Genesis 15 that says, if you fail, it'll be my blood on the line, not yours. We failed, and there's the cross with the blood spilling out. Do you see what I'm saying? But so, so this has never been about, God has never been about a contract, or else you've got to rip out your entire Bible because he doesn't care. He wants a bunch of servants to just follow the rules. Right? Y'all still with me? <clears throat> this thinking, this thinking of atonement, and I'm going to break that word down in a second, is called, the, in a theological sense, it's called penal substitutionary atonement theory. Really long word. The idea of this, which most denominations believe, the idea of this is Jesus died for us. Or, another way, in other words, 
that he was the substitute for us in the bullseye of God's anger. And, I'm, and again, I know I'm adding a little bit of you know, my exaggeration to this. But this is what this means, that Jesus died for us. The word atonement can be understood by breaking down the actual word, at one meant. Atonement is bringing things back together, unifying, okay? So the theory of atonement that we believe Jesus achieved says a lot about both why we think Jesus was incarnate and what we think the Father really thinks about us. Also, this defines whether we know it or not how we view our relationship with God. Now, I'm going to make a statement right here, and I really need you to process this. There is a major difference between Jesus dying for us and Jesus dying as us. There is a major difference between Jesus dying for us and Jesus dying as us. Well, which one is it? John 14, 1.14 says, The Word became flesh. Sarks, human nature. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul takes it a step further and says, The Word became, or He became sin. So, He didn't just represent flesh, and He didn't just represent sin. Paul and John both, and many other places, speak on Him becoming flesh and becoming sin. Do y'all see the difference? See, this is stuff that we read through and we skim through and we kind of skip over all the time. We don't stop and think, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Word did not represent flesh, and the Word did not dwell among us. That's not the Greek. The Word is in us. It should say the Word became flesh and put His tabernacle in us. That's what the Greek is, okay? But He became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So Jesus, of course, did not die at the hands of God. He died at the hands of man. Right? I mean, it's not like a deep theological thing. I mean, it's just like we, men nailed him to the cross. Amen. Right? Y'all good? Okay. So Jesus, by definition, did not die at the hands of God. God didn't nail him to the cross. We did. We killed Jesus. Acts 2.23, Peter literally says, you killed Jesus. Okay? In fact, let me just quote it. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. So we did that, not God. Jesus did not come to shield God's anger and give us a contract that if we keep it, we're in. Jesus, who, by the way, was the fullness of the Trinity, not just one part, this is what Colossians 2, 9 says. In Christ, this is the New King James, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Boo! So it, Jesus was not one-third of the Trinity in man. Jesus was 100% of the Trinity in man. <laughs> Whoa! You know, you know what I'm saying? How many of us have ever heard that? That Jesus, this is what Paul says, Colossians 2.9, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Jesus became our darkness 
and formlessness and delusion and gave himself over to us to act from our darkness, from our formlessness, and from our delusion by not recognizing, thus killing God through Jesus, so that we ourselves put all of it to death when we nail Jesus to the cross. That is a lot. So let me just... Jesus became us, then submitted himself to us, the Romans, and then us, we, nailed... You ready? I'm going to say something that you're going to have to really think. We nailed us to the cross. He became sin. So when we're nailing Jesus to the cross, we're nailing our fallen identity to the cross. Y'all good? We nail it to the cross. We put it to death. So when he says it is finished, what is he talking about? What The, the anger of God is finished? Well, honestly, the way that a lot of us believe, that can't be possible. Because he's still mad. What, what is finished? What is finished is what we killed. It's not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's God in the hands of angry sinners. I think I'm losing him. Then, after that, after he says it is finished, what pours from his side? Blood and water. Pours from his side, symbolizing our rebirth as sons and daughters of God. Blood and water pours from a womb when a baby is born. Blood and water pours from his side. We are rebirthed of God at the cross. And finally, three days later, Jesus raises to life in the same flesh, yet fully restored. Same body. We know this because he's eating with them. He's hanging out with them. People see him. So he's not just a ghost floating around. It's his body that raises from the dead after just taking our death for us, not for God, for us so that we could see him rightly, not so he could see us rightly. Do y'all, I, I, know, I know I'm repeating things that when I say it, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Except we've built theology on those thinkings. We have built our entire belief about God that we were nasty and sinners, and most of us still believe we still are. Brother, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we heard that all my whole life. I saw that the other day. Somebody, I think it was a bumper sticker. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm like, well, I guess you haven't been saved by grace then. But Jesus on the cross, as our sin, puts it to death. Now, when he rises from the grave, all of a sudden, we find ourselves represented in him. I taught this two weeks ago. Represented in him in resurrection. Okay? So I'm going to read this a little bit more in a second. So he uh, rises again. His resurrection for us means a new opportunity for us to try again. If Jesus died as us, his resurrection means he raised as us. He is victorious as us. He's seated with us, reigning with us. And it, Adam's fall, is actually, truly, and completely finished. This kind of relationship is called covenant. A covenant relationship is not karma-based, do good and get good, like a contract. A covenant is a promise based because I love you, based on the idea 
that I am in this contract because I simply love you. In a covenant, you don't act on uh, good behavior. You act on affection for the other, sometimes despite behavior. How many of you have ever, I mean, uh, well, I'm probably going to put some people on blast when I say this, have been in a relationship in any way, shape, or form? Don't raise your hand. A lot of you have been in relationships in some way, shape, or form, okay? So because of that, you know what it's like that there are some points. I'm not perfect. So there are a lot of points where Jordan has to love me despite my behavior, okay? Because I'm not perfect. Thanks, Holly, for the, for the amen when I said I'm not perfect. I appreciate that. But, um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but you see this? But, but she loves me still because she's not in a contract with me. She's in a covenant with me. Covenant says I love you despite behavior. Contract says I only love you if you behave. In short, a contract is a relationship, you ready for this, based on you giving the other your works. A covenant is a relationship based on you giving the other yourself. All right, one more time. One more time. A contract is a relationship based on you giving the other your works. Hello, religion. But a covenant is a relationship based on you giving the other yourself. When you say yes to marriage, you're not saying yes to behaving like a married person. You're saying yes to giving that person who you are. And in return, that person's giving you who they are. Which is why the two become one. The cross was not a symbol of a new contract negotiation. The cross was God reawakening the covenant he entered into with humanity when in Genesis 1... The Trinity states together, let us make humanity in our image and likeness. When that statement was made, remember what I said, and we get the, you know where we get the phrase, the two become one? In Genesis, at creation of man. When God says yes to creating man in image and likeness, the two became one image and likeness. So when Adam was raised, God didn't say, here's the deal, Adam. See that tree over there? If you eat of that, we're done. No, he said, we're in this covenant. You can't get out of it if you want to. However, the best way to live in this covenant is to avoid that. But even if you taste that, I've already got a plan in place, and it's that. Right? We think we broke the relationship by eating the fallen the, the tree. By taking a bite of a fruit, we broke the relationship as if it was that fragile. I wouldn't, I mean, if I told Jordan, hey, please don't eat my Reese cup, and she eats it, that's not terms for us to get divorced. Right? Thank Morgan, I, I know that was a good point, but, you know, no, I <laughs> just dropped everything. But, no, I mean, we think, we think, either bite of, I don't know why I always point over here, maybe this is the fallen area, but, Eat, take, a bite, take a bite of the fruit, and we're done. And they did, and we think they were done. We call it original sin. And, uh, and because of that, and they're done, everybody else is affected by all this nastiness, okay? And what really happened was they took a bite of it, and the Lord said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do later on. I'm going to give you a law to show you where that is in you, because if you can see where that is in you, you'll see what I'm aiming at when I come do this. So if you, know, if you know where the darkness is within you, brought about by the law, 
Okay? If you know where the darkness is, then you can look at the cross as a laser beam to your darkness. If you don't know where your darkness is, you're going to make the mistake of seeing the cross as a laser beam to you. <clears throat> Y'all cold in here? Um, do you want to bump up the far left ones to like 73, 74? I can sw- I'm sweating, but I also wore flannel trying to make it fall, and it's 90 degrees outside, so that is my fault. Our, our relationship with God has never, ever ever been works-based, ever. Therefore, here's a big statement. If our, let me ask you this because I want y'all to indict yourselves. Um, I don't want you to take it from me. Uh, do, how many of you agree with the statement, our relationship with God has never been works-based? Y'all agree with that? Perfect. Therefore, if that's true, I argue Jesus could not come to just take away our evil actions or works alone Because if our relationship with him was never based on works, him coming to take away our works would actually do absolutely nothing to affect our relationship with him. It Right? All y'all just said, it was never about works. So to then say the cross was about Jesus coming to take care of our works, if that never defined our relationship, that meant nothing. Because our relationship's still intact because it was never based on work. So he just came and did all that to get rid of some works that never even affected us in the first place. Okay. Y'all hate when I do that, right? I just do that so people don't say, well, Josh, you said this. No, you said that. The only possible way Jesus could change us was to put an end to the fallen identity and get us to see once again that his affections for us are immeasurable and unending. So to accomplish our sozoing, and I'm going to break down this word in a minute, to accomplish our sozoing, again, he had to become our fallen us so that through his death, our fallen us could be dead and unresponsive. That's Colossians 3, that's Romans 6, and that's a million other places. So if we think in terms of contract, salvation means Jesus saved us from God's punishment by way of our failed works on our end of the deal. If we think that way. The problem is, the word translated salvation is the Greek word sozo, The meaning of this word is expansive and is 100% of the time dealing with out-of-sorts identity being put back right. 100% of the time. It means, and I break this down in a minute, but it means healing, it means preserved, it means made well. Made well is the most accurate translation of the word sozo. So what if we read John 3.16 as this? For God so literally gave his only begotten son that whoever believe, the Greek word actually means entrust whoever is entrusted with. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever is entrusted with his only begotten son shall not perish but have eternal or for eternity, be made well. Lord, completely changes. That's the Greek. That's what Paul wrote. I mean, not Paul. That's what John wrote. You know what I'm saying? So, the more, uh, the more accurate translation of this is to be made whole, and I would maybe even add in parentheses again, to be made whole again. We weren't saved from God's anger, 
we were put back as we were always supposed to be. In contractual terms, God's wrath is scary because it's aimed at us. In covenant terms, God's wrath is amazing because it's aiming at whatever threatens to pull my mind and your mind back into the lie that we're not connected. Right? I, I used to uh, hear a lot of people preach the gospel as in like, if you don't repent, the wrath of God is going to be after you. Looking back now, I would say, praise God, maybe I shouldn't repent because I want the wrath of God to be after me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, that, what they were saying was, is if, if you don't do this, then God's anger and his wrath is going to be aimed at you. What we see in Scripture is that God's anger was never aimed at us or else we would have been the ones on the cross. I mean, let me, let me just really mess with you. If God's idea of fixing things was to take care of our actions, we should have died on the cross, and then we should have been the ones to be raised up in brand new life. Why would God come and die for us if his aim was to fix our actions? We should have been punished for our actions to see that we shouldn't do those actions ever again. But God himself took our punishment instead, not to show us I'm coming after your actions, but to show us I'm coming after that which is within you that never belonged in you in the first place. I'm going to become the darkness within you so that I can shine a light in it so that the darkness within you could be flushed with light. Jesus did not come to fix God's view of us. Jesus came to fix our view of God. He did not come to fix God's view of us. God now sees us through the blood. No, he never needed to see us through the blood. He saw us exactly as he created us to be. We're the ones that needed to see God through the blood. Luke 17, Luke 17. Uh, this is one of those messages. Normally, it just flows out during the week, and last night I was finishing it up. I wrote at least four messages this week, and none of them were the ones the Lord wanted to speak. So y'all just know, though, you got a pastor that will not preach anything that doesn't come from the Lord. So, Because um, I got a lot of it. But here we go. Uh, let me show you something in this. Luke 17, verse 11. That's where we're going to start, and we're just going to go down to uh, 19, 19. Now, and I'm in the NIV, by the way. Now, on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, so he's on his way to Jerusalem, ultimately to be crucified. He was traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Really huge. I'll point this out in a minute. He was going into a village, or as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity or mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourself to the priest. As they went, they were cleansed. Amazing. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well, or your faith has healed you. Okay, really, really cool. Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. The Jews wanted nothing to do with them because of that. Um, and then Galileans, so Jesus was in between Samaria and Galilee, um, were full-blooded Jews. So Jesus was walking between an area 
of one group and another group that were completely against each other. Okay? Um, you, could, you can maybe say it like this. He, w- he was walking between those fully in covenant and those not fully in covenant. Samaritans and Galileans. He's walking in between um, the number 10. There were 10 leprous. I'm going to just point out a couple of things real quick before I teach on this. There were 10 men who had leprosy. The number 10 is the number of creation. Six is the number of man, and four is the number of physical creation days. So 10 is the number of creation. Uh, lepers is the Greek word lepra, and that is straight out of the lexicon. I'm going to say this. It's a disease on the flesh, a disease on the flesh that made you ceremonially unclean. Okay? It is literally scales that cover your natural flesh. Leprosy is a foreign disease on your skin, on your flesh, okay? That made you ceremonially ceremonially unclean. It scales covering who you really are. The word cleansed when they uh, walk away, as they're going to show themselves to the priest, as they went, they were cleansed. The word cleansed is catharis, and it means to clean, to make without mixture, to purge. And this is straight out of lexicon, so I want you to hear this right here. The word cleanse means to make free from the influences of sin. Because in this day, they saw anybody with a sickness such as leprosy as having that sickness because of their sin. That that was a punishment from God for their sin. So for the Lord to clean them would be the Lord in their culture removing that which was caused by an influence of sin. Y'all, y'all with me? Okay. So let me point out a couple of things right here. The, the word healed... No, I need to wait a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. Number one, all of them were cleansed. Number one, every one of them were cleansed. Not a handful, not the one that came back and said, praise God. Every single one of them were cleansed. They were all made free from the influence of sin. They were all presented as innocent. Every one of them. But one of them comes back. When they realize, or when he realizes that he is healed, he comes back. So the Greek word cleansed is katharos, to clean, to make clean, to make innocent without influence of sin. The Greek word for healed, when he realized he was healed, is the word, and I'm going to butcher this because it's a really weird word, but it's iaomahi. Iaomahi. That's how you say it. That's the word for healed. And that word means to be physically healed of disease. Unbelievable. That word is used a ton in Jesus' ministry. But he comes back after seeing that he was healed, of a physical disease, he comes back. And then Jesus, after he comes back and gives thanks, Jesus says, number one, was the only one that came back to worship a Samaritan. In other words, all nine of the other ones that were also healed, 
were all Jews, full-blooded. The one that came back to worship was the one who would essentially by the Jews be called a Gentile. Half Gentile, you're full Gentile. You know what I'm saying to them? So the Gentile comes back and he thanks the Lord for healing him physically. And then the Lord responds and says, rise and go, your faith has made you well or your faith has healed you. Now, if you think about this and stop and you're like, okay, if you just pick up an English Bible like this and you read this, you think that Jesus is telling this man his faith is what physically healed him. There's one problem. All the other ones were also healed. But they didn't come back. Jesus is saying that the faith in the Samaritan was evident by the fact that he came back to praise God, which tells us in that case the other nine did not have that. Okay, so here we have something that's really confusing because when we read this in the English, like I said, just pick up an English Bible, it seems like the Lord in a couple of verses is completely contradicting himself. That he heals everybody out of the kindness of his heart, but then one comes back and he says, it was actually your faith that healed you. One problem, the word there is not healed. Your faith has healed you. It is not healed. So the word faith, I've taught this a thousand times. The word faith is the Greek word pistis. It's that which comes from God as a guarantee that what he spoke will come to pass. Okay? So when you're living in faith, you're simply living in that which God gave you. That's why there's not a measure of faith that you could have. Okay? It's either yes or no to what God has given you. You're trusting in the faith that comes from God. That's what the word faith means. Y'all good? So for us to, you know, believe is not for us to say like, okay, I'm really convinced. No, for, for us to believe is for us to say, I'm going to live in what I've been given. Different. But he says, rise and go, your faith, what you've been given has made you well. That word made you well or healed in a lot of your Bibles. Do you know what that word is? Sozo. Okay. He's made whole. Your faith has made you whole. Jesus cleanses them all from their fleshly disease. The, the word flesh in the Greek is the word sarx, which is also translated other places as human nature. Okay, It represents human nature. So he cleanses literally their human nature. He cleanses their humanity. All of them has their humanity cleansed. Jesus represented humanity on the cross. All of them have their humanity cleansed, okay? But, as I have been saying, there is a difference in being in the dark and being in the light convinced you're in the dark. Have y'all, I don't, maybe you haven't been here to hear, hear me say that, but I'm going to say it one more time. There's a difference in you actually, truly, authentically being in the dark and you being actually and truly and authentically in the light but convinced in your thinking you're still in the dark. Right? Amen? Okay. So he cleanses them all. Faith is us taking sides with God over how we see both God and us. That's what faith is. It's taking sides with what God has given, with the thoughts that God thinks, with the way that God moves, with the promises that God has given. Jesus did not come to just cleanse us of our disease. 
he cleansed us of our disease to remove that which prevented us from being made whole again. All were cleansed. Only one changed his mindset, took sides with the king, and was made whole. Lord, help me explain this. Iahomi, the Greek word heal, when he realized he was healed, deals with the nature of humanity. His flesh was healed. Sozo deals with the identity that that nature lives in. Y'all good? So when you see Jesus aiming at making us clean, you'll live to remain clean. If you see that's what he's aiming at. But if you see Jesus as aiming at making us whole by renewing our minds, then you'll see cleansing as a necessary piece of him accomplishing his aim, but the rest, excuse me, but rest in the truth that the reason that he is cleansing us is not so that we could act better, but so that we would stop living by what your and my works were never supposed to give us, which was our identity, and instead remember who we are. Lord, I just ripped everything. Brandon, you can go ahead and get ready because I'm about to show you all a video. Um, and let me get this ready too. Don't play it yet. But um, we, when we are... Lord, how do I say this? Because I don't want to say something I don't mean. Salvation, sozo, is a necessary piece of our lives. But it is not, it is not for you and I to be cleansed of our actions so that we can do better actions. That was the cross. The cross cleansed it. We say things at Easter in every denomination that don't half know what they're talking about. We say every Easter, he cleansed us of our sins, past, present, and future, but then we'll indict people because of their sin. So either we lied, we don't know what we're talking about, which that's, that's the, that is the, the bingo, um, or, or we believe things that are completely against each other. So, so did Jesus at the cross take care of sins, past, present, and future? Absolutely. So then, what is salvation for? Salvation is for you to realize now that the scales have been removed, there's an identity on the inside of me that I'm called to live in again, which is the one that was knit together in my mother's womb that he knew before I was ever born. Do you see what I'm saying? So if we preach a salvation that you've got to do this and you've got to do this, and if you do this, then you're not going to get this and all this other stuff, we're preaching karma, we're preaching a contract, and we're preaching the love out of the cross. I was going to say something else, but it's live streaming. But we're, preach, we're preaching the power out of the cross. This is what Paul tells them. Paul even says, and I'm about to read it, but Paul says, if you go back to living in this works law, you do this, you do that mindset, you're stripping the cross of everything. The cross took care of our sins, absolutely. 
But the reason the cross took care of our sins is so that the cross could take care of the fallen identity that we, in our minds, thought we were separated from God because of. We were never separated from God, but we believe we were separated from God because when we took the bite of the fallen identity, that darkness began to permeate within us until one full of light became the darkness that permeated in us. And then, if the darkness is removed, what's remaining? Light. Darkness is a measure of light. It has no existence. Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is just a measure of light. If you remove the darkness, the only way you can remove the darkness is to turn all the lights on. Right? And even, let me say it like this. The way that darkness is, because this was one of my messages, but the way that darkness is measured is two things. It's uh, how much light is present, okay, number one. But then the other part of that is an expectation of how much light is actually supposed to be there. Okay? So if you walk in this room and we're doing a rock concert, Okay, And before the concert, we turn off all the lights. Most people in the room wouldn't say it's dark because there is an expectation that there's going to be a certain ambient-type lighting in the room for this particular event. Right? But if you go to a USC football game at night and they turn off 80% of the stadium lights, you're still going to be able to see around, but everybody in the stadium is going to say, man, this is dark. Yet, it's brighter in the stadium, technically, than it would be at a rock concert. Okay? So, we define darkness by, A, a measure of light, and, B, how much light we expect to actually be there. So, ready? By us saying, and for every beloved traditionalist watching this, which probably they aren't, but they might never hear this, but this is for your family, for your grandparents, all of them. For anybody that says, well, boy... The world sure is dark right now. Remember, what is darkness? Uh, an absence of light, but it's also an expectation of what light is actually supposed to be there. So even in us defining the world as dark, the Holy Spirit within us is saying there is a light that is designed to be here that is not here right now. You know what I'm saying? We say, well, brother, if it's getting dark, we're going away. No, I say, if it's getting dark, the Lord has prophetically announced light has come. A little too much philosophy. Let me, um, let me show you all this um, video real quick. I found this. I've been thinking about this. I wasn't going to show you all this, but I am actually going to do this. So let me, so y'all know how much I love Disney movies, right? And, uh, I want you to tell me if this isn't, this isn't the most accurate depiction of the gospel when you watch this. Go ahead and press the space bar. Might take a second to load. Sorry about that little buzz. Just let it 
Now listen to this. I'm about to preach right here. You can turn it now. Thanks. All right. So, you're right? You see what I'm saying? So, A, you need to watch more Disney movies. Um, but B, I, I, I couldn't come up with something better, is that every single person on planet Earth, past, present, and future, has an image within them. Or else God didn't create them. And if he didn't create them, we got a lot of other issues, okay, with a lot of other religions involved. But if God created them, there is an image. Let me say it like this. If Jordan and I had a billion kids, okay? Now, listen, 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 listen. If we did, how many of those would not be our kid? Zero. Why? Because we made them. So there are a lot of sons and daughters who have forgotten who they are. And most of the reason they've forgotten who they are is because they've been running from their past. They've been running from things that have happened to them or maybe because they've never even known who they are. And Jesus comes, and I've been reading the New Testament. I don't even know how many times I've read through the New Testament lately. But reading through this, I realized two things. The separation in Scripture was never those who were Christians and those who were not Christians. That didn't even exist. The separation all throughout the New Testament is Jew and Gentile. Okay? And the reason is, is one of those was bogged down by religion, and they had to leave religion in order to realize who they are. The Gentiles never knew that religion so they had to believe they were included in something they had done absolutely nothing to deserve to be included in. Both are really difficult. One's way easier. Right? So when Jesus is talking about wicked people, when Jesus is talking about a perverse generation, when Jesus is talking about unbelievers, do you know who Jesus is talking about? I mean, just like hermeneutically in the Bible, you know who Jesus is talking about? the religious people who didn't believe he was the Son of God. These people had no issue believing he was the Son of God. None. He goes to the woman at the well, who is a Samaritan, and he says, I am he. No questions asked. She immediately runs back to her whole town and says, come meet a man that told me everything I've ever done. He could be the one we've all been praying over. You know what I'm saying? So that's how they respond. The religious ones are the ones that said, that can't be him, he's Joseph's son. You know what I'm saying? 
But we, we have read the New Testament like that. We think like when he's talking about the wicked, he's talking about all the people around us who don't have a clue who they are. He's talking about the wicked are the ones who know who they are but live like they don't know who they are. That's the wicked ones. Many will come to me in that day and say, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? Well, who's prophesying and casting out demons? It's not the prostitutes. It's those in the family. And he will look at them and say, I never knew you. So what we've got to do, and this is what we've been doing, is we've been throwing darts at the ones that he's actually pulling in. You know what he tells the Pharisees? Here's what he tells the Pharisees. He says, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering into the kingdom before you do. So Jesus is gathering those, if you read Isaiah, Lord, gathering those from the four corners of the earth. And the ones that we need to be fearful of are not the ones who the Lord is going to call out like children who don't have a dad or like sheep who think they don't have a shepherd and he's going to go after them and leave all the 99 until he finds them. That, I mean, Lord, we need to witness them, sure. But the ones we really need to be scared about are the ones who have been told who they are who think they believe they know who they are, but are rejecting living out who they really are. The church for years has been throwing darts at the world when we should have been sitting around saying, why do we, the ones who hold the truth, act like we don't got a sense what truth is? You know what I'm saying? So the message of love is for everybody, But this is where the wrath of God comes in, is that the wrath of God is aimed at religion within us. And the way we we respond to the wrath of God, the way we we respond when He's reminding us of who we are, is going to say a lot about what we're going to experience in this next season. I, I literally, I have none of this in my notes. This is completely from the Lord. So, do you know what I'm saying? Because I love, I, I love every single person in the family of God. I'm, I'm real harsh. I'm real harsh sometimes with people in the family of God. But that's because, that's because we've sat around and acted like we don't have brains for decades. And if we sit around thinking we don't have a clue who we are, how on earth are we supposed to shine a light to everybody else? We're supposed to tell them who they are. So we're inviting people into a religion that doesn't know who they are. So everybody that comes in is all walking around like sheep without a shepherd because we don't know we actually got a shepherd. What what does that mean? It means this apathy that is going around in the church today. Lord, all right, I'm way off my notes now. But it looks like this, this apathy thing going on in the church today that, I mean, like, people don't give a crud about this thing anymore. Not this, but, like, the church as a whole. They don't care. And the, so what the Lord's going to do in this I'm, I'm prophesying. This is a prophecy right now. What the Lord's doing in this season is he's going to call all those who we said would never be a part of this because of what they've done, and they're going to lead the next piece of this. And the ones that we held as the poster boys and girls for this movement, he's going to tear down until they realize that they are no better than those out here. I think the next megachurch movement, the next megachurch movement is going to look like churches like this with 20 or so people in there that actually believe we've inherited the love of God. 
Because I will, I'm not going to preach messages to make you feel good about yourself. I'm going to preach messages to get you to know who you really are. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 I'm not going to spend my days on how can we spend $45,000 on inflatables so that people show up to church. If Jesus ain't enough to show up to church, I don't know what is. It ain't going to be an inflatable. You know what I'm saying? And if, if, y'all get, if you get here because of an inflatable, i got to keep you here by an inflatable. We ain't got that budget. You know what I'm saying? But, but what we do have is the love of God. So let me, let me read this real quick, and then we'll be done. Matt, you can come up here. Colossians 2. And uh, if y'all don't want to take my word for any of this stuff, then uh, maybe, you'll, maybe we'll take Paul's. Um, but let me read Colossians 2, and I'm going to read uh, a little bit of, nine, um, little bit of uh, chapter 2, a little bit of chapter 3, and then we'll be done. So here we go. He, Jesus, is the complete fullness of deity, the Godhead, living in human form. That's the verse I just read earlier. But listen to this. Our own completeness is now found in him. We are completely filled with God as Christ, oh, or excuse me, as Christ's fullness overflows within us. He is the head of every kingdom and authority in the universe. Through our union with him, we have experienced circumcision of the heart. All of the guilt, listen to this, all of the guilt and the power of sin has been cut away and is now extinct because of what Christ the Anointed One has accomplished for us. For we have been buried with him into his death. Our baptism into death also means we were raised with him because of the faithfulness of God's resurrection power, the power that raised him from death's realm. This realm of death describes our former state. Everybody say former. Thank you, a couple. Describes our former state. For we were once held in grip sin's grasp, but now we've been resurrected out of that realm of death, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven of all of our sins. The word sins there, uh, right there, is not hamartia. It's the word that means falling away. So he could say it like this. We have uh, been resurrected out of the realm of death, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven of our fallings away. Or of our falling away. He canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us, he erased it all. What did he erase? Our sins and our stained soul, he deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. Listen to this. Everything that we once were in Adam has been placed on the cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon, all of their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. Listen to this. He was not their prisoner. They were his. That's good. Skip ahead to verse 20. For you were included in the death of Christ and have died with him to what? The religious system 
and the powers of this world. So here's the call. Don't retreat back to being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. Listen to this. For example, their strict requirements. And this is cultural for that day, but you can't associate with that person, don't eat that, or you can't touch that. These are the doctrines of men and corrupt customs that are worthless to help you spiritually. For though they may appear to possess the promise of wisdom in their submission to God through the deprivation of their physical bodies, listen to this, it is actually nothing more than empty rules rooted in religious rituals. And I don't mean to be too, like, straightforward. I, but that verse might apply the most accurately to the current reform movement. Because <laughs> all this, this new Calvinist movement that's going on today, all of it, all it's about is being holy by what you do. Or you're, you're called to be holy. No, I'm called holy. There's a difference. Brother, you're called to be holy. You're called to live in holiness. No, I'm called to live as one who has been made holy. There is a big difference. You know what I'm saying? And Paul says, you must not retreat back to being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. Notice Paul takes an entire section, says not one word about the, the evil going on around us. He calls the true evil the religious system that says you can get in by doing your works. Chapter 3, a couple more verses. Now I want you to hear this. this is, I mean, this is unreal. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection too. This is why we are to yearn for all that is above, for that's where Christ sits enthroned at the place of all power, honor, and authority. Yes, feast on all the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realities, not with the distractions of the natural realm. Renewing your mind. Your crucifixion with Christ has severed the tide of this life, and now your true life is hidden away in God in Christ. A couple more verses. And as Christ himself is seen, listen to this, for who he really is, who you really are will also be revealed, for you are now one with him in his glory. Now, I want you to hear this because I've never seen this until recently. After all of that, this is what Paul says. He says, live as one who has died to every form of sexual sin and impurity. Live as one who has died to diseases and desires for forbidden things, including the desire for wealth, which is the essence of idol worship. Listen to this verse. When you live in these vices, you ignite the anger of God. Wait, Josh, what are you talking about? I thought we just talked about this. When you live in these vices, you ignite the anger of God against these acts of disobedience. Here, live as one who has died to every form of sexual sin and purity, died to diseases, died to desire for forbidden things, including the desire of wealth and idol worship. Live as one who has, who has died to the things, Okay. When you live in those, you ignite the anger of God. Toward what? Toward those things. Which again, is an amazing thing. Right? So when you're living in 
uh, as one who desires for forbidden things. Live it, live it. If you're living with a desire for forbidden things, the Lord is not coming after you because you desire forbidden things. The Lord's coming after the desire for forbidden things that is within you. Do you see this? That's how you once behaved, characterized by your evil deeds. But now it's time to eliminate them from your life once and, once and for all. Anger, fits of rage, all forms of hatred, cursing, filthy speech, and lying. Lay aside your Adam self with its masquerade and disguise. You have acquired new creation life, which is continually being renewed into the likeness of the one who created you, giving you the full revelation of God. In this new creation life, your nationality makes no difference. Your ethnicity makes no difference. Education or economic status, they matter, status, they matter nothing. Now, for it is Christ... That means everything as he lives in every one of us. In this new creation life, your nationality makes no difference. Ethnicity, education, economic status, none of it matters. For it is Christ that means everything, and he lives in every one. So, so I taught this last year, I think it was. So when we're aiming at bringing people into the fold, we're not giving them something they don't have. We're pointing out the thing within them that they don't know they have. But this, this is a testimony to you and I, though, is that it's one thing for us to sit around and talk about how we're going to change the world. I love changing the world. It's amazing. But the... It's a whole nother thing, and this has got to be the first step for you and I to believe this is us first. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people, people ask me all, I mean, you know, why don't you preach on this? Why don't you preach on this? Why don't you preach on the gifts of the Spirit? I am preaching on the gift of the Spirit. We got to know what love is before we know how to, what speaking in tongues is. And people say, well, brother, if you speak in tongues, you'll love. No, 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 no. If you love, you'll probably speak in tongues. And even if you don't get the gifts of speaking in tongues, you'll still love. You know, you know what I'm saying? Or whatever. But, but all, I'm telling you, this, for five years almost, in November it'll be five years, the only, and those of you that have been here, the only thing that we've talked about is what? Who God is and who we are. That's it. That's all we've talked about. And I'll quote the words of Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun. You know what I'm saying? But I'm telling you, I, I've never, let me, it's just like praying in the Spirit, praying in tongues. I've prayed more in the Spirit in this revelation of love than I've ever done in my life. And it's not because I see that as me getting more love. It's because the more I'm convinced of who I am, the more I live out who I really am. Do you see what I'm saying? So you and I have got to be convinced. Like, do you believe God is good? My Lord, do you know what I mean? Do you believe he's good? Do we trust God? If he's on the other end of the contract, I do not trust God. Because as we all know, in a business deal, both sides are in it to get what's best for them. So if this is a contract thing, I don't want nothing to do with it because he's just in this for him. For him. But if it's a covenant, that means he's giving, given all of himself to me. And my proper response is to lose my life so I can find it. Let, let, me, let me say it like this. While we're saying heretical stuff, let me just say this. Super heretical, I guess. Um, Jesus commands us, unless you lose your life, you'll never find it. But if you find, if you, 
unless you lose your life, you'll never find it. But if you find your life, um, if you don't lose your life, you'll never find it. Anyway, you know what I'm saying? If you lose your life, you'll find it. Jesus said, I'm getting tongue twisted. So Jesus said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. Now, on the cross, Jesus lost his life. No one can take it from me, John says, quoting Jesus. Nobody can take it from me, but I freely and willingly give it up on my own. Okay? And if he freely and willingly gives it up on his own, he can take it back. Resurrection. On the cross, he gives up his life so that he can find it. What is his life? If somebody, I say this to Veda all the time. I say, Veda, I love you with my whole life. All the time. What am I saying? I'm saying, my world revolves around you. Same with Jordan. Right? If Veda was lost, I would give up my life to find her. So Jesus goes ahead of us and lays down his life to find us and ask us to respond and lay in our life down to find him. That's what covenant is. You give yourself to the other and the other gives themselves to you. So I'm, I'm gonna pray. And what I want us to do this week is I want us to really process, process where, where have we seen our relationship with God as a contract that we've got to keep up some end of the deal in order to stay in. No, the, this isn't a sign your name on the dotted line and you're in on the contract. This is a say I do and I'll give you myself for the rest of eternity. That's what it is. When Jesus, y'all go, go ahead and close your eyes, bow your heads. When Jesus on the cross, he in Hebrew, because Jesus didn't speak Greek. So, so in Hebrew, he said the word, it is finished, kalah. That word is a homonym, which is, it is finished. And then the other piece of that meaning is my bride. So Jesus, when he announces that it is finished, immediately the first thing he announces is our identity, bride. Who is a bride? One that is one in covenant with another, with a groom. So Lord, I I pray right now that you would solidify first I pray that you would solidify your yes to us the cross was not a no to us that resulted in a yes because our no was taken care of the cross was God proving to us that even while we were still sinners your answer to your affection toward us was yes while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I, I pray that, that that reality would just simmer in us all week. I pray that how we look at people would just begin to just bubble up from this, this love-sick feeling in the pit of who we are that says we are so loved that we are so the affection of Almighty God that there is no place we could run to get away from it. That's what David says. David says, if I go into the heavens, you're there. If I'm in the earth, you're there. And if I go down into the pits of Hades, you're there. There's nowhere I can escape from your presence. That's what David says. I think it's Psalm 129. Don't quote me on that. But 
In Psalms, that's what David said. He says, because of who I am to you, there is no place I could go that is away from you. That's how affectionate you are toward us. So I pray that we will feel that. I pray that we'll do devotion in that. I pray that every single part of our lives would begin to submit to the knowledge and the understanding of the love of God. And by that, we're going to see gifts like we've never seen. We're going to see people physically healed like we've never seen. But I believe we're in a season right now where you are, the aim of you healing those 10 lepers was not for them to be physically healed. You physically healed them because your aim was to sozo them. And so I believe even when it comes to miracles and signs and wonders, you're teaching us a piece of this that is necessary for miracles, signs, and wonders to move from an abracadabra hurrah, look at this amazing thing, into sozo. And in that, we're going to see stuff that's so much greater than a sign and wonder. We're going to see Columbia, South Carolina, the United States of America, and the world covered with the knowledge of who you are. And as sons and daughters are being manifest, all of creation is going to start worshiping because it's coming out of its chaos, out of its decay, out of its slavery. And so, Lord, this is just an unbelievably beautiful picture that you are painting for us right now in our day and age. As we're praying, I just, I felt the other night when we were in prayer and I didn't share it because I felt like the Lord wanted me to wait until the right time. But, um, but I believe the Lord wants to say this now. We were in prayer a couple Tuesday nights ago and um, as we were in prayer, the Lord sent me to the passage where, where the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. And when, he comes to vi- when she comes to visit Solomon, he shows her everything. He answers all of her questions. And right before she leaves, she blesses him. And she says, you know, I was, and this is my version, um, super summarized. But she says, a lot of people told me a lot of stuff about you. But the half had not been told. The half has not been told. And then, and then she goes a step further and says, because of God's eternal love for Israel, he made you king, Solomon. Solomon means peace. Okay? So because, man, I feel that. He said the half hasn't been told because of God's eternal love for his, for his people. Because of his eternal love, he made peace to reign over them. Who was Jesus? Prince of Peace. The half has not been told. I believe that is for us. Absolutely. Not just for us, but I think it's a huge piece of what the Lord is doing right now. Is that the half, we, the half has not even been told to us. And we're going into a season where I believe the Lord is going to begin to speaking th- begin to speak things. He's going to begin to download things to you in your own secret place. Um, He's going to begin, let me just say this over some of you. Some of you have had a long, dry devotion season. Some of you used to hear amazing things in the secret place. It used to just flow like it was effortlessly, effortless. But over the past season, maybe even a year, maybe plus, it's felt dry, it's felt tough, 
it's felt hard to get in. And honestly, it's felt hard to even wake up and spend time in the secret place. And I believe the Lord for you and for all of us is about to tear open springs in the wasteland. He's about to tear open springs and rivers in the wasteland. And a wilderness, a wilderness is about to become a lush garden. Let me, why, just while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let me just read this over you and then we're done. I'll just feel this right now. Come on, just keep your, keep your heads bowed, eyes closed, because I want you to really just process this. This is for some of you specifically. Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees to give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The, eyes, the ears of the uh, deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground a bubbling spring. In the hands, excuse me, in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And last part, a highway will be there and it will be called the way of holiness, it will be for those who walk on the way. Jesus, the unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, no ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed. And those the Lord has rescued will return. Listen, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I speak that over every single devotion place in this room right now. Over every secret place. That where there is a dry desert, you have simply positioned us in a dry desert so that you can allow springs to begin to burst forth in them. Where there will be no weeping and no sighing ever again. Lord, we love you and honor you in this place. And it's in your name that we all pray. Amen.